Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Globe Podcast. For this episode of the Globe Podcast, I asked Professor Douglas Brooks to record some thoughts about how to deal with stress and burnout. Professor Brooks points out that a condition of being human is that we're in a repeated process of crisis. That's another way of saying that we can't altogether avoid stress. But Professor Brooks believes we can learn how to cope with its effects. In this episode, he outlines a yoga practice to help us cope with stressful situations. He asks how we might practice a kind of yoga that will allow us to experience the disorder of life without the experience of life blossoming into crisis. He illustrates his practical ideas with quotes from ancient texts, a story or two, and in the end, recommends to simply breathe. At the heart of his recommendations is to make a commitment to your yoga practice. As Professor Brooks puts it, stay in the game, allow yourself to come to practice with commitment and with an ability to repeat that commitment. I hope you enjoy this episode from Professor Douglas Brooks. Welcome, this is Professor Douglas Brooks. It's been a tumultuous few years, hasn't it? We've all experienced global pandemic and political upheaval. The deep stress we feel living in a world made precarious by human climate change and all the other things that amount to a life that I think all of us have felt is engaged and committed, committed to family, to each other, to ourselves, and to, I hope, our own self-care and well-being in the process. And yet, invariably, I think, we are all feeling the stress. And many of us are feeling that very edge of burnout. And when we turn to yoga, we find in, in those practices and those teachings an invitation to addressing our experience somatically, emotionally, cognitively, in all the ways in which we experience the totality of our humanity, this is the invitation of yoga. And so today I want to talk about what we think about stress and how the stress that we experience in our everyday lives is engaged through the practices and teachings of yoga. I want to look back at how the ideas of putting ourselves under stress, in ardor, we might use that term, and in other ways in which yoga is exacting and assiduous, even as it is inviting, calming, and, and effective, efficacious in the ways in which we can address these conditions and terms of human experience, which all of us invariably experience. We're going to look at some important language in the history of yoga 
and then turn to some seminal texts, uh, tell a story about a yogi, um, and invite ourselves to think about how to allow our commitment and how to make a commitment, what in the yoga tradition is called avrata, avrata sometimes translated a vow, but that is to say a durable self-conscious effort in order to commit ourselves to practices and to understandings that we know from our own experience and from the attested and valued experience of those who've come before us really provide important relief and access and ability to contend with the situations that every day bring us into stressful situations. And especially, as I said, you know, I think many of us are feeling, uh, are feeling the burnout, are feeling close to being simply exhausted and in this exaggerated environment of our own, of our own making, and yet also one that was thrust upon us. And we need ways to talk about how to address stress. And yoga traditions have offered us an enormous body of resources to think about these ideas and to understand what we can do with ourselves and to better the situation of our own human condition. And so we're going to look at that vocabulary and those that languaging of primary resources in the yoga tradition and we're going to carry this forward and try to understand that stress is not only problematic and sometimes even uh, um, the making of our own adversary, but stress is a natural and important feature of our human constitution. And one of the things yoga is particularly uh, adept and committed to doing is, is taking those situations or those experiences we have that we find problematic, even detrimental, and turning them around and making our our seeming enemies into allies, our adversaries into assets, and how to bring uh, a commitment that allows us to reverse the process in which uh, a situation where, as in our ordinary language, we think of stress uh, in, in negative terms as detrimental, and how to, how to take what is then understood to be something that is going to happen, something we're all going to feel, something entirely real that happens every day to us, and how to turn those experiences into advantages, into allies, into situations in which that stress is no longer um, depriving us or causing us to, to really feel that burnout, but how, in some sense, to burn brightly. How, in some important way, can we use these boundaries and edges that we arrive at that, that can be so problematic, and how to transform them into experiences of value and advantage. Let's make sure we begin with a broad and comprehensive definition of yoga as 
those ways in which we engage ourselves deeply with commitment and with playful seriousness to bring this embodied experience of human life to its to its its boundaries of wonder and greatness and a sense in which we revel and celebrate the human condition. Whatever else yoga has promised um, in, in spiritual and religious traditions to relieve ourselves of the burdens and entrammelments of our limited mortality, we're going to leave those uh, to another conversation and focus today on how yoga has been an invitation and um, a thoroughgoing examination of the possibilities of our experience as stressful beings. So we begin with the very notion that simply living is in some sense a process and in some sense a contention with stress itself. Let's look at one really ancient term here, and you can see how, how the yoga traditions kind of bring together this notion that, well, stress, you can't live without it, but how do you live with it? And one of the old words is the word bhara, bhara, B-H-A-R-A, bhara. And bhara is actually related to the English word bear. That is, how do you bear it? How do you hold it? And bara is really one of those words for stress because it, it signals the notion that we are in a situation that we must hold together, that for which there must be commitment, and, and that it's putting stress on us. And yet the term bara for all the ways in which it, it signifies that process of, of enduring and addressing a situation that is within reach of, of crisis and, and nearly problematic. It is also a sense of our capability and the necessity of being able literally to hold ourselves uh, as far as possible um, to translate a situation uh, into ease and possibility, which in a moment's notice may in fact become crisis and criticality, and how to translate that process in which we are at once um, very much vulnerable and, and at the very edge of crisis that may turn critical, uh, even in every uh, every simple moment in nearly in every breath, <laughs> because just hold your breath and the body will um, with, with with certainty and and alacrity remind you that you need to alleviate that crisis and take yourself a good breath. So that process in which we are ever on the edge of crisis and criticality where where we bear the the 
the experiential um, wonder of a human embodiment puts us in a conditionality and in terms that we must address um, consciously and, and willfully, um, even as the body bara, the body, the body and the mind, the heart and the spirit, as it were, uh, knows its own betterment. It is, it is bearing upon its own, its own capabilities. Um, well, most of us uh, have learned that in yoga, it's when we bring consciousness and awareness and, and attentiveness, mindfulness, smarana, to the process of our own breathing and to our own natural human conditionality that we begin to, to transform that situation in which our intuitive and natural process, having been brought into this deeper engagement, into this yoga, uh, brings with it certain kinds of insights, clarifications, possibilities, and re, um, re, reinterpretations of our own human situation. So, but first and foremost, um, we can say that in a body that is by definition stressed and stressful, the body knows. Um, my teacher used to say, used to place this in, 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 in a, a very beautiful way in the context of, of the empowering universe, the Shakti, and which is in yoga traditions often expressed through the image and symbology of the great goddess. And, and so this powerful universe that embodies us and enlivens us and gives us the gift of life is called, is called Devi, the great goddess, the light. And my teacher used to say, she breathes you until she is done. And in that sense, relieves the burden and holds us and bears us because as our bodies, as our minds and hearts know, um, that intuitive and direct experience with or without our attentions and mindfulness um, knows that stress is first and foremost a condition of being human and that we address it naturally and and um, chronically in, in virtually every moment. Um, if there's one thing that we certainly know about uh, human embodiment and this peculiar way in which we are more or less 98.6 degree Fahrenheit beings is, is that we are creatures of homeostasis. We are ever in the process of seeking out that important natural equilibrium, that alignment and relationship to heat and light and temperature and stress that, that reconfigures us in every breath and engages us to re-arrive at that equilibrium in the face of a world that in, in, certain ter in uncertain terms is bringing upon us a crisis of disorder or entropy. So order moving to disorder, that's the process called entropy. And 
at the conclusion or in the midst of every breath, that reordering of our consciousness, of our bodies, of our experience or feelings, that readdressing the crisis of stress um, is our ability to bear that stress, bara, in a way that, that for, for a moment, for a time, allows us to re-arrive at that homeostasis, at that balance, that alignment, that once again turns disorder to order and repeats the process again and again in that recursive blessing of being an embodied life. And so what we're really saying is, is that the body and the mind are always in some sense intuitively, naturally, and by the, and by the selections of nature, inviting us back to a sense of momentary equilibrium and awareness that allows that entropy perfectly normal that impending crisis to, to aver and prevent this situation of criticality and simply breathe and uh, once again attend to the human experience in ways that are, that are in relief and in a certain sense um, in a persistent and, and repeatable process of engaging effort. Now, when that process uh, transforms into an engagement of consideration, of awareness, and attentiveness to what is natural with a capacity of mental and physical engagement, we call that yoga. We call yoga that invitation to, to bring what the gifts of a natural condition offer into a, a deeper sense of, of possibility and awareness and potential because that stressful and conditionality, that situation of being, of, of being human, forever in this repeated process of crisis, um, can benefit and transform itself with this process of yoga. And to that end, um, we, we can turn again to, to uh, another way in which the yoga traditions have invited us to that heat, to that light, to that process of, one might say, well-engaged and deliberate stress. And here the important term probably is familiar to you um, if you've been students of yoga, and that's the word tapas. Now, now we don't we don't mean delicious food on small plates. Uh, tapas is a vital term in the practice of yoga and in the history of yoga, and it originates in the verbal root in the Sanskrit language that means to heat. And so the tapta marga is the path of heat. And in the ancient world, heat and light are are correlative concepts. All light is heat. And heat itself is illuminative. And of course, it burns. To be a tapasvin or to perform tapasya, to be a tapasvin is to be one who practices tapas. To be in tapasya or to practice tapasya is to 
allow tapas, allow heat and light, deliberate and self-conscious efforts directed towards literally um, not simply addressing stress, but dare we say, creating stress in ways that are constructive and empowering. So tapas is the word often translated um, in, in texts also as a kind of, as, as austerity or asceticism. That is to say, tapas defines a certain kind of commitment to engage and withdraw, to, to turn up the heat, is to take the ordinary terms of life and, and allow the burners and, and the illuminators to invite us to an engagement of connection where that sense of determination and effort and commitment are in fact forms of, of discipline, dare we say that, discipleship, commitment to effort that invites us, um, that, that, that puts stress upon us, that deliberately invites stress in order to address the crisis of being human. And that crisis, as we just, as we've been noting all along, is impending and imminent and something that we don't prevent, but something that we must learn to engage. And tapas is that first, most important teaching and practice of yoga that says in order to take this, uh, in order to address this stressful life, we are born capable of bearing its terms. That is itself a blessing. And yet when we bring yoga to our bearing, then that tapas, that discipline, that commitment, that turn on the heat is a way of of taking on the, the truths of that natural condition. We are, we are beings burning and to, and to kindle the fire of awareness and to stoke commitment and to make effort that is disciplined is called tapas. And while that might involve restraint, withholding, attenuation, the various kinds of commitments that we often find stressed in yoga traditions that have to do with placing self-conscious limitations or choices upon ourselves, choices that, uh, that, limit, that, that limit us with respect to, to, to bodily choices, like, like food and, and the management of breath or the commitment to breath that's called pranayama, the disciplines of the breath or the constraints, the yama, the constraints and deliberate engagements of commitment to the breath. All of these are typically associated with, uh, with tapas, but also tapas as a positive and self-conscious commitment for effort, for this ability to commit ourselves with, with repetition and, and, and a certain way in which we become more durable and capable, not only of withstanding, but of bringing ourselves to greater capacity and ability. So tapas really is sort of a workout for the human condition. And 
in which in which the heat and the light are are generating um, both the capacity to withstand and bear the world, to deal with stress, and yet bring us to that edge where in those places of, of effort and repetition, we literally are able to take the impositions and demands of our human experience and make them more, not simply endurable, but more empowering and more committed to capacity. Like we all know that with a regular asana practice and and exercise and commitment to uh, to food and to sleep and rest and to each other in in kindness and mindful relationship. That in all of these ways we advance and com- we advance our commitments and make and and turn up the light and the heat. That is, we make tapas in a positive sense, even as we become more capable to, of literally withstanding and enduring and dealing with just how hard life can be in everyday situations. Now, of course, tapas has always been associated unambiguously with withdrawal, with non-attachment, with a kind of asceticism of retreat from, from the mundane world and, and into situations that where, and into situations where we can raise the temperature, we, one can do tapas. And as that process, um, engages deeply body, mind, spirit. It is also a commitment um, from the world, that is, uh, into meditation, or as the legend of the Buddha says, um, literally leaving home and attending to the, and, and, and attending to the forest and, and as it were, retreating from the everyday into a space of tapas, into a place where one can concentrate on tapas as a practice in the the great yoga traditions we find this ex- extending over over every every historical tradition um the buddhist tradition of tapas eventuates into into a notion of the middle way and that is a middle way of course because the the the, the heroic character of the historical buddha finds himself um unable to attend and relieve and engage himself by indulgence as a as a privileged as a privileged prince living in in the palace um young siddhartha the one whose aims will be accomplished is uh is is bombarded with indulgences and desire fulfilling uh, temporal experiences of, of every kind as a young prince, in some sense, to relieve his stress. And here his stress is defined as a relentless form of desire. And the word there uh, that our friends the Buddhists use is quite helpful. It's the word in Sanskrit, tershna, and in the Pali language, tanha. And tershna isn't quite the word desire. It actually means thirst, a kind of yearning. 
And think of that experience when thirst is a kind of visceral and 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 undeniable experience. Like it's it's begins to command you. And when you're really thirsty, you can't help yourself. And it becomes a kind of a kind of necessary experience that you have to address. Like gotta do something about this. And so the thirsty experience is then kind of becomes this encompassing notion that when we begin to notice how dependent we are upon satisfying our desires and the immediacy of our experiences, that this urgency and this necessity that Buddhist tradition calls tershna, thirst, is in fact really just a feature also of every moment, because we are going to be thirsty for breath. We're going to be, our hearts are thirsty to beat, if that isn't at all a metaphor we can extend here. And what I mean to say is, is that, is that this, um, this diagnosis that our human condition is defined by our thirsts, the things that we, that, that we must quench and address um, in every moment is part and parcel of that story. And of course, as young Siddhartha, the Buddha shows us, there is no amount of satisfaction or fulfillment of that kind of recurrent, persistent, inevitable thirst that will, in some sense, solve the problem once and for all. And so, He's looking for, in some sense, a solution to the human condition that, in a certain way, the world cannot provide by indulgences. And so one of the, I think, important takeaways here is that thirst is a natural feature of our human condition. We, are, we bear stress because we're human, and our commitment to that experience um, need to tell us that so long as we are in this body and so long as we are of the human condition, our mortality is defined in at least in at least in important ways by the stress we feel because we thirst, because we desire. Now, however desire may be problematic and cause us, you know, all kinds of of fret and anxiety and, and need to address, it is also a part of our natural condition. And so once again, we learn that, that this attentiveness, this translation of desire into thirst is, is taking upon us an awareness of, of need and an awareness of urgency that is part of, in this case, the historical Buddha's um, legendary tale. And then he, of course, um, leaves home and family in this radical decision, as it were, to go to the forest, to, to cross the river from comfort and, and recurrent, unsuccessful fulfillment, and to enter the forest to perform tapas, that is to turn up the heat. And so to deliberately bring a kind of stress to his situation. Of course, what we know is that even over the course 
of five years of extreme tapas, um, what Siddhartha discovers is that deprivation and denial, that a certain kind of exacerbation of stress in the form of, of a deep engagement of withdrawal, um, non-attachment, uh, denial of bodily need and experience is also, also, also consummates in a kind of failure, that it just doesn't work. And so I think that important takeaway of the middle way in the Buddha legend is, is still a vital part of our experience, even though we are unlikely candidates, um, both for the kinds of exaggerated satisfactions the prince experienced while he was a worldling, or our desire to, as it were, retreat from the world, head into the forest, renounce home and family, and take up the, the extreme boundaries of yoga that are defined by the tapasvin, the tapas practitioner, the stress-creating, illuminative heat maker. Uh, that, that character um, still comes to a vitally important and relevant conclusion for for we worldlings um, who invariably notice our thirsts, and that is that that is we can't ultimately commit to satisfying them in in material ways or in worldly ways unless we are equally committed to understanding that that they are incumbent, that they're necessary, that that if you're going to stay in the world, indulgence won't satisfy them ultimately, but commitment and repetition are a key to, to, to bringing even a momentary sense of equilibrium and possibility. That notwithstanding, as a topic we should take up further about, well, how do we address this inevitable stress of desire that just comes with being alive? And, and understand that, that this that a radical denial of ourselves, a, a kind of rejection of the human condition, um, starving ourselves, sending ourselves into paroxysms of exercise or discipline or or vratas or vows that exact from us more than they nourish us, that that also is part of the Buddha legend. He went to the forest, he overdid it, and he paid and he paid the price. Now. The good news, of course, in the legend is that he realizes that, that this self-denial is a kind of nihilism, in fact, a kind of narcissism. And that's an important lesson, I think, also, that in our, in our seriousness and in our hope to address um, the stress that we feel in the world and our commitment, we, we deepen commitment, we make effort. We bring ourselves to the very boundary. And what the Buddha found out uh, before he, of course, awakens to the middle way is that he is at the edge of burnout. He was burned out by a world of indulgences, which don't ultimately satisfy or fulfill. And he was burned out by these exaggerated and, and self-denying efforts that brought him to the brink of death and and so the Buddha becomes an interesting legend about indulgence and burnout and about how, if we're going to be serious about 
our engagement, our yoga, that we will not really come to the best human possibility either by by committing or believing that we that our stress can be answered by comfort or by indulgence. So, yeah, I know, but all that like that comfort food and that that extra glass of wine with dinner, if if you find those if we think that we're going to be able to indulge our way through our stress by relieving it in in some kind of excess or commitment to fulfilling desire, the Buddha legend tells us that's that's doomed. We will come to a boundary where we will burn out even by our our effort to try to satisfy our desires. Um, in indulgences that bring us only further into the malaise of, of, of stressful near burnout. And then, of course, the legend tells us, you know, if, if we go to the mat, you know, too many hours a day, if we discipline ourselves um, too harshly and ask too much of ourselves, if we take tapas and kindle that fire too too strenuously in too many exaggerated ways you know your our vow to go to the gym every day or to the mat or yoga class every day that too can create important burnout the legend of the middle way is 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 in some sense a commitment to kindling and heat and light and effort and seriousness it's it's a path um, never of mediocrity, but it is, in some sense, an awareness of boundaries and a commitment to bringing oneself to the edge, but not over the, but not over those edges, not into those places where the burning burns us, and where that process is is um, is more is, is more depriving than it is nourishing. And I think it's um, I think it's important here also to note that that the yoga uh, that kind of is messaging here in the legend of the Buddha is not particularly interested in moderation. Can we say that? Can we say that with real honesty? This is a story. the The story of of yoga's commitment to stress um, isn't back off. It isn't. It isn't restrain yourself. It isn't moderate. It's bring yourself to the recognition that at the edges of our human condition, that is indulgence and denial, we end up, we end up in that less than optimal and possible way in which the experience of being human um, becomes a blessing and a gratitude and with a serene with a, with a greater serenity and deeper awareness so that uh, so that we can attend to our hearts and to the story we want to tell in a human life. But the legend of the Buddha and the teachings uh, of the of yoga tradition, there don't mistake me, there there is some message of moderation, but it is moderation that is understood to be a kind of invitation to to commitment to seriousness let me put it simply 
we must address our, our stress um, to the very boundary of what nourishes and empowers us. And, and rather than, I think, take up a more, more ordinary notion of moderation, which is a kind of facile mediocrity, I think that yoga traditions are really asking something from us and asking us to commit to our stress in order to relieve and address and nourish the experience of stress. We must engage it. In that sense, um, moderation as retreat or as, as a kind of denial of rigor or commitment is something that we must take to heart. Yoga's always, um, it's always a recognition and, an, and a commitment that acknowledges that we must bring yatna, we must bring effort to our, to our process. And in that way, um, it's, it's interesting to hear uh, what the Yoga Sutra has to say about this repeated effort in, um, in, in Yoga Sutra, it says, Tatra stitao yet no byasaha. Tatra stitao yet no byasaha. So there, one achieves stitta, stability, a capacity to continue and, 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 and become steady and engaged and this is such a wonderful term because this word stiti ends up meaning persevering and enduring but it's also a way in which we are able to to take a stand to allow ourselves to continue to 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 empower ourselves in a kind of stability and notice how wonderfully committed this is um, to the to the language of of paradox that is so common to yoga because we've already engaged we've already admitted that we must be engaged in stress that we are stressful beings and that that is a dynamic and ongoing process that it's not something that we can literally reject it's part and parcel of our human nature that we are at the precipice of crisis in, in, in nearly every breath. And yet the commitment of yoga is to become stiti, that is to arrive at a stand, a state, a steadiness that allows us to be steady in the whirlwind, to be committed and standing, um, persevering and nourished by our ability um, to take a stand. And when we arrive in that place of stand, how do we do that? Here, the Yoga Sutra tells us we do it by yatnyob abhyasaha. Abhyasaha. That's a it's an important and famous term in yoga tradition because it means practice. And it means repeated practice. So abhyasaha. This is another word that, another way in which we, we might be defining stress itself because it's a repeated exercise, a discipline, a kind of study. So abhyasaha, abhi means to or towards. And asa, yes, that's the word that is uh, 
that that word is is related directly to the word asana, to the word seat, to the word that we associate with with yoga practice, yoga asana. So abhyasana means coming towards the seat or coming to one's seat. And yet the word abhyasaha clearly means do it again. Stay in the game. Allow yourself to come to practice with commitment and with, and with an ability to repeat that commitment. And so this recurrence, this capacity of awareness is abhyasaha, the repetition of a practice. And what is abhyasa? Tatrastitao. There, one stands in the, in, in the practice of yatna. Yatna means activity. It means effort. But it also means enthusiasm. It means something like when you have yatna, you have effort, but you have enthusiasm, aspiration. You have a re- you've, we, we begin to take those desires of thirst, those ordinary desires, and transmute them into aspirations, into feelings of commitment and, and activities of intentionality and will. So, yatna, effort, will, aspiration. Um, I'm, I'm reluctant to call this um, something like zeal, you know, like, but, but it, it's, it's a kind of redirection of desire and thirst towards a kind of nourishing, aspirational deepening of commitment and effort. So what does Yoga Sutra say? It says, effort in remaining in that stand is called practice, right? So abhyasa, that practice, is a yatna, an effort. An effort to do what? An effort to take one's stand. The Bhagavad Gita puts this in yet another way. It defines yoga as yoga staha. What is yoga? It's, it's standing in one's commitment. It's, it's a resolution to bring practice, to bring yatna to one's, to one's stand in a whirlwind, in a, in a tolman, in a stressful world that wants to burn us out, our commitment to standing and taking our stand in engagement with what? with a kind of yatna, that is, a kind of effort, certainly a sense of commitment and discipline, but with a kind of joyful and and shameless and unabashed enthusiasm to love life, to take one's stand and to do it again, and to do it again. And that's abhyasa. What is abhyasa? It's it's going to the seat again and again. And in that sense, it's going to the seat. And in contemporary terms, um, as many of you are practitioners of modern postural yoga, your asana practitioners, abhyasa is literally like getting up and going to your asana practice. Like it's going and taking your seat. But that seat is a place where you can refine the joy of yourself, re-nourish yourself. Take to heart 
the ways in which the body and the mind and the soul thirsts, but it not only thirsts um, to be satisfied or to be indulged, it thirsts to be committed and it thirsts for a kind of gratitude and experience of sweetness that comes with every breath, that comes with each attentive awareness. And so there we can stand. We can take our stand in our practice as a place where that willful and intentional, that committed sense of yatnya, of making the effort, transforms that heat and light. We're going to make tapas by making effort. And how are we going to do that? We're going to come to our seat again and again, not to burn ourselves out or to indulge ourselves or to bring ourselves to the brink of, of practice that, that, that in some sense uh, deprives us and, and, and exaggerates the issue, but in a way that nourishes our, our inspiration and feeds the body and the mind with commitment and with heartfelt effort that, yes, we can do this again. And yes, we must do this again. And so what does that abhyasa bring us? It brings us to another important notion um, that Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra is keen to describe um, because he pairs abhyasa, that is our ability to do it again, you know, like, Sometimes we have to pretend, sometimes we have to create whatever persona we need to address, you know, a particular situation. Sometimes we need to take that deep breath and bring ourselves to ourselves so that we bring restraint and, and commitment and mindful awareness to our words, to our gestures, to our physical body. And when Abhyasa does that, brings us to that repeated gift of commitment and aspiring awareness. Then we have the capacity to manage, to address those feelings and desires, to take those impulses and, and allow ourselves with awareness to bring practice and effort and then that tapas, that heat and light that yoga invites us to experience when we commit becomes a capacity to manage and to address the particularities and circumstances and the kinds of contexts that bring us to really stressful situations. And that ability to manage our feelings and to address our desires and to take particular moments where we feel on the brink or on the edge or about to lose it, that process that, that yoga commits us to is, is called vairagya, vairagya. Now, this is, again, a, a word with many meanings in the yoga tradition, but vairagya can often be translated or often is translated uh, in the yoga texts Again, at very boundary creating, uh, boundary marking definitions like dispassion or freedom 
or relief from worldly desire, or even the, the excision or expurcation that is to drive asunder one's passion or one's desire. Um, and, and yet, vairagya is in fact something that's, 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 that can be understood in, in, a, in a way that suits us better uh, to, to take up what's possible when our raga, when our feelings, our passions are, and that, that word raga is so beautiful, that's, that's at the root of the word vairagya. What, what it teaches us with, with respect to our stress is, is, is much like that, that idea of tershna, of thirst, that it's going to come. It's, it's urgent. It's inexorable. It's just a part of us. And so raga, like tershna, is another one of these important terms in yoga that's inviting us to, to, to like keep it real understand this is this is what's going to happen that when we are mortal beings we have thirst and now we have raga we have passion and we have desire and and yet that can also be transmuted with awareness and with care with engagement not in not simply into passions that that carry us away but passions that carry us towards and with ourselves with love, with care, with consideration. These are also ragas. These are also feelings and passions. And when we take those experiences of this complexity and often confusion and, and, and complication we feel with our desires, when we, when we take our ragas, this, this entirety of feeling and thought, obligations, worldliness, the, the, the kids, what's for dinner. I mean, everything in a certain way is addressing our ragas, the things that, we, that, that, that drive us and motivate us and sometimes demand or coerce from us ways of, of how are we going to deal with this? Like, what are we going to do with these feelings and thoughts? What are we going to do with these situations and contexts? How do we take them from being uh, demands and coercions, stressful experiences that, that deprive us and deplete us and, tra and transmute them into experiences of commitment and and enthusiasm and enthusiasm and care how do we take those desires well we have to be able to distinguish them to to notice what they're doing uh in our bodies and how our minds and our choices how our commitments and vows our vratas how that way in which we can repeat and stand in yoga in ourselves how that can take place um in ways that allow us to organize and to experience and say, okay, this is, this is how I feel right now. This is, this is the experience of the desire I'm having. Here, this is where it's depleting me. This is where it's, where it's driving me and coercing me. And yet I can gain a certain sense of, of sovereignty and engagement and empowerment 
because I have chosen yoga. I have chosen not to ignore this or to deny this or, or, or to let it carry me away. But instead, I'm going to, to bring to that raga, to that deep feeling that otherwise might be managing me and controlling me, I'm going to bring to that viraga. I'm going to distinguish it. I'm going to give it a context. I'm going to place it in its distinctive formulation, its viraga. And then I'm going to bring to that an awareness of that situation, of that feeling in its context, of that moment and consideration. And I'm going to bring to that vairagya. Vairagya is the ability and the capacity to take our thoughts and our feelings and to align them to a circumstance, to see them as created in a context, in an environment, in a situation. So these ragas, these natural feelings or these choices and desires that we manufacture, these passions and experiences, they don't become independent or or dissociated, they become processes of distinctive possibilities connected in a much larger context in which we can then define them through their circumstance in a situation. Vairagya is the ability to situationally, in a context and with empowerment, take a feeling, take a thought, allow a passion and an experience that we must bear that's going to bring us stress and attend to it with a mindful tapas. We're going to kindle it. We're going to illuminate it. We're going to attend with care and, and awareness, a sense in which those passions don't command us, but we have vairagya, the ability to take them in circumstance and context and see them in light of a greater and more encompassing, nourishing, empowering ability that we call yoga. So yoga becomes all of those resources and tools that allow us to turn to our bodies in a deep breath, in a moment's pause, in an instant in which those feelings however they're washing over us, however they seem to be determining us or pushing us or coercing us, how we take a certain sense of effort, yatnya, we bring light and heat, tapas. And that engagement with ourselves gives us an empowerment. That empowerment is called vairagya, the ability to address our passion to take up our feeling and to give it a place in our lives that lets us make a stand. And so Patanjali gives us a, a beautiful way of saying this. He says, Abhyasa vairagbhyabhyam tan nirodaha. He says, we are able to give pause, to put up meaningful boundary, niroda, we're able to create a capacity to withstand and hold this whirlwind of experience 
we can pause, we can cease to be commanded by our feelings and by our thoughts that overtake us. And, and how do we arrive at this capacity to give pause, niroda, to take a stand in yoga? We can, we can again commit to practice abhyasa. We can go towards our seat and we can seat ourselves in the heart. We can seat ourselves in the gift of the body. We can seat ourselves in breath, in mindfulness. And then we can take up these practices and feelings of passion, transmute them from, from overwhelming, commanding desires, and invite them to become instances of consideration, moments of concern, and then again, claim a certain commitment and engagement, a yoga. And what will that yoga do? It will give us a moment to pause. It will give us an instance and an opportunity to examine, to little by little address these matters so that we can create a durable and plausible experience that allows our human condition to become nourished and embedded. Abhyasa vairagya byam tan nirodaha. So when the Yoga Sutra potentially gives us a really kind of interesting and practical assessment. Now let's not overstate um, what the text might mean here. Um, Patanjali's invitation is, is dramatic and, and, and it's not unfair in the deeply ascetical traditions of, of withdrawal and non-attachment to read Patanjali's understanding of, of abhyasa and vairagya, repeated practice and dispassion as being, as being a really rigorous and, um, and relentless sense of commitment to a state of, of, of occlusion, of withdrawal from the world. Patanjali's Yoga Sutra read through its principal commentators is very much an internalization of, of the human experience with the promise that through rigor and through these radical practices of engagement, we arrive at a place of, in which there is a kind of immunity and a kind of, of relief, ultimately, from the problematics of the human condition. That is not an unfair reading of, of the promises of, of Patanjali in classical yoga. But as contemporary yogins and as, as, as interpreters of yoga practice, um, Patanjali's promises of fulfillment uh, without the world are here uh, also plausibly interpreted as, as a moment in which we give ourselves pause, relief, a sense of opening and clarity, of willful, passionate opportunity, and take that as this 
this re- this this moment of relief of the burdens and problematics of stress and how shall we do that we shall take our stand we shall commit with aspiration and 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 gratitude to our seat the seat of a heart the seat of a compassion and care for the world a seat that we take again and again and that's abhyasa to take your seat again and again in yourself in your intuitions and feelings that that speak to this this possibility of of nourishment and empowerment and how else is that how is that accompanied that's accompanied with the practice called vairagya and here we might take that as as meaning now our feelings now our desires our thirsts our passions they are enlivened and brought into context and situation so that they don't command us they don't overpower us but we give ourselves that pause and that commitment to not let ourselves be overtaken to be burnt out to be overstressed and so we don't let our passions determine us but we take up our passions as the empowering tool of our engagements so now with some of the vocabulary and the teachings of yoga one of our most important first takeaways here is that the unhealthy and depriving experiences of stress are going to have to be addressed that we can't let them overtake us or define us that we're going to have to take up the matter of stress first and foremost as a natural feature of our human condition and then with the attentiveness and commitment of yoga to bring meaningful efforts and repeated practice coming to the seat again and again so that these feelings and experiences don't carry us away but rather take context and consideration vairagya so that we can arrive at a meaningful way to address them to give them pause to give them context and consideration now you can do that in any number of ways in our lives but one of the things that yoga traditions are also telling us is that is that a committed practice of yoga takes up body mind heart it takes up the entirety of our being and and that yoga as a way of life doesn't have to uh interfere with other concerns or cares or even other kinds of commitments to tradition to family to religious upbringing but that all yoga really means is that we're going to take seriously and give concern and practice to the human condition so that we can make a difference so that we can bear bada the stress and and not simply withstand the slings and arrows of life's outrageous fortunes but rather but rather hold them and nur- be nourished by this strange gift of a stressful life now to that um 
I'm going to tell an unusual story, uh, this time from the great epic, the Mahabharata. And here in the warrior's tale of the Mahabharata, um, we find an interesting pause in the storytelling uh, outcome because the, the, the prince uh, Yudhishthira, who is first of the Pandava brothers, so these are our heroes in the story, and Yudhishthira's job is to manage the stress and to address the desires and to come to the seat again and again of his station in life. And it's his responsibility to offer leadership with a kind of sensitivity and concern for the longest view of, of his family and his country and his commitments to life. And so Yudhishthira, at a very crucial moment where our heroes find themselves consigned to an exile in the forest, is literally having to address the cares and concerns, the deep stress that his entire family feels as they confront this somewhat unjustified and problematic situation where they're about to spend 13 years in exile. And each one of them has their own experience of, of, of distress. And it's Yudhishthira's plan to transmute every family member or to give them the tools or to create a situation because of his leadership to create a situation for each of them to take up their own yoga and to address their own distress with a yoga that is appropriate and well-fitting to their own situation. And at this important interval in the, in the story, uh, each of his brothers and their, their wife, Draupadi, the great heroine of the story, each sort of articulates at some length just how distressful and personal they find the, the world they're in. Um, they, they've been deprived of ordinary joys and pleasures. They've been put in circumstances not of their own creating, of their own creation, but rather um, subjected to, to the politics and to the circumstances of, of their lives uh, without their consent or, or without perhaps enough, uh, enough really wherewithal or, or ability to really shape their existence. You know, part of feeling stress, of course, is, is knowing that we really aren't in control of all of our circumstances. And we don't really manage or direct all the terms of our lives. Life happens. And it comes to us in problematic ways, whether or not we are the particular agents or provocateurs of those situations. We, we are very often um, circumstantially um, victimized or subjected to terms and conditions not of our own making and that we still have to manage and address. And that is exactly the circumstance we find the Pandavas in here as they begin their 13-year exile. And I'm going to feature just 
three different characters and the way in which they express their situation to Yudhishthira, um, who, who in some sense, as, as, their, as their conversationalist and as the leader of the, of, of, of the family, such as it is, or it takes with sympathy and care and concern the circumstances of each of them. And the reason Yudhishthira is in this role is because they each come to him looking for a way to express their concerns um, and to take responsibility for themselves and so address the person who has also his own responsibilities in this situation. Doesn't this sound like a complex family in which each of us has an important role? Each of us has responsibilities and circumstances. Some have to take on one burden or another, but all of those stresses come to the fore. And what we see here is the willingness of the family to address with, with candor and seriousness their, their circumstances and their each individual experience of that situation. And so, and so, um, the, the most, uh, I think, interesting character uh, that begins this conversation is the heroine Draupadi, who has very much been, uh, been burdened and insulted and subjected to all sorts of unwanted and undeserved indignity and stress and has come very near the edge of burnout as she has consented agreeably um, but reluctantly to enter into the forest of this exile, um, think of it as a, we might think of it as a, a COVID lockdown, uh, you know, stuck in the house, stuck in the forest uh, with the kids and the family, um, no, no real opportunity to meet community or to uh, engage with friends and others in the repeated practices that might offer her um, some nourishment and, and empowerment. Instead, she finds herself confined and directed by circumstances not of her own making. And she very deftly and articulately um, takes a strategy to first give voice, to, to, to explain and describe her feelings and her thoughts about being subjected to these circumstances, to this kind of <clears throat> unwarranted fate and destiny that she finds herself in. I think that that's the first way in which Draupadi, in a truly heroic way, takes stress and the burdens of life and her own potential burnout at, at, at the edge of this untenable situation. And she brings yoga to it by giving voice to it. And, and by bringing that voice with ardor, with tapas, like she turns up the heat and she illumines the situation. She does tapas. And in that heat, um, it's not unfair to say she has valid and important complaints and observations about not only how she's been treated, but by how those with whom she shares these burdens and takes up these circumstances have 
have addressed that situation for themselves, for better and for worse. And so Draupadi gives voice to, to the circumstance with candor and honesty, but also with a kind of calm, deliberate, observational witness. She wants to be seen, and she's going to make clear what she has observed as the unhappy circumstances that she shares and how others are dealing with those things. And so there's a deep commitment to relationship, to conversation, and, and a willingness to share the, the stressful, unhappy circumstance and to give it voice, not to pass it over, not to deny it, not to reject it, and then to take those feelings and those desires and bring them again to a seat of, of nourishment in conversation and in clarity. And she says, quite clearly, there are three things that we can do when we find ourselves in this nearly unbearable situation. How do we make yoga? Well, the first thing she says is that we must receive the, the, the truths of our situation with a kind of, with a kind of deep breath of engagement with a seriousness of receptivity. That becomes, in her mind, a recognition. We didn't create all of these circumstances ourselves. However, we are going to have to be responsible and obliged and necessarily deal with what the world has placed upon us. This is the way of the placer. That's how she describes this situation, that we have been placed in, a, in situations and circumstances that we must first and foremost address um, as it, 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 with receptive serenity, a kind of vaidagya, take up each of those situations where we have strong feelings and passions, where we see a situation of, of even menacing or, 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 or terrorizing experiences that threaten our, our very lives, and to say, okay, now we're going to have to first receive, accept, not with passivity, but with deeply engaged receptivity, and that becoming one of the principal features that the great epic Mahabharata gives us as a feature of the heroine, a feature of the feminine empowered consciousness here in the character of Draupadi, not to become passive or disinterested, but to become deeply receptive and allow those passions and problematics to become inspirations to, to take up the situation receptively with clarity, with insight, and to revisit the situation as it changes, as it evolves in its dynamics, but to remain ever engaged. And so she gives us a receptivity with, with, it, with a calm but responsive vigilance and awareness that, look, sometimes life happens to us in ways that um, we must, we, we've got to sort out how we feel because we need, but we need first to sort out those, those experiences because this is what's on order. This is what's been handed to us.
She then takes up the second strategy, which is to say, what can we do about it? What is our karma? And karma not only being uh, now, now being transformed from a passive into a receptive category of actions and intentions of practices and, and dynamics of a life situation. And she takes that karma and she says, we're going to create a way to sit with these circumstances with clarity. And she uses the word prasada. Prasada here as a yogic practice means a graceful receptivity, but a clarifying and calming insight. And that again becomes very much a draupadi, heroine, um, feminine encoded empowerment. Receptivity becomes translated further into, into the karma of prasada. And there we and there our seat comes forward, we become we become gracefully receptive. We look to blessing. We look to opportunity. We look to how a stressful and burdensome situation gives us openings and possibilities. What can we do? It isn't, it isn't bypass. We aren't saying, oh, it's great that these horrible things happened or that we're subject to circumstances beyond our control or that we're going to have to deal with these un, this unhappiness or these these passions that are difficult to address, whether of our own making or, 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 or from outside. It is saying, however, that in those problematics of what comes to the seat, prasada, we can go towards the seat, abhyasa, and take our seat in yoga and become, and become carefully attuned to, to, the nature of those problematics and what we can really do about it. What experience do we have? What help can we ask for? And how to clarify the situation? And she's she's not afraid to to lay it on the line, to be clear about about what these circumstances of exile and these these sort of indignities she has herself had to experience, what costs they've 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 laid upon her. And yet she says, Prasada, I am going to take a position of clarifying serenity because I can't understand this and won't be able to deal with this with clarity, with Prasada, unless I am more receptive with candor and honesty, with a calm and presiding tranquility, with a seat coming forward to the seat, Prasada to take that seat of serene receptivity in order to advance a deeper clarity, then karma, then our actions and our choices can become more meaningful and more productive. And then she lays us upon us a third feature. And again, with a kind of <clears throat> seriousness and but buoyancy and, and opportunity, because she says, in fact, we don't know what's going to happen next. We can let that terrorize us and overwhelm us, or we can take that as an opportunity of possibility. Draupadi is taking up the, con the concept or the idea of Leela, that this playful world, 
that fragments and fractures, that is filled with unpredictability, that sometimes only gives us approximations rather than certainties, and in fact offers a kind of, ready for this one, stochasticity, a kind of not randomness or anything can happenness, but an unpredictability in which we are entangled in unpredictables. And we are, we are responsive to a world that is, in fact, indeterminate. We just don't know all the things that are going to happen. And sometimes it's good luck and sometimes it's bad luck, but it is not wholly within our control. And we're going to let that Leela, that world of possibility over the horizon of our predictive powers, not to become terror or not to allow it to become um, a, a demon that haunts us or a problem that, that, that we that we invent through further expectation, but allow that horizon of the unknown, that uncertainty and possibility to be, again, received with clarity, dealt with, with, dealt with in candor as it arises, and allow our resourcefulness, our exigencies and abilities to address the situation, not with doom or forecasting dread, but with, but with serene, clear-minded opportunity, because life really does happen in the unpredictive, and we need to nurture the expectation we're going to be able to address this because we stand in yoga together, because she turns to, to her partners, to to her friends with whom she shares this situation. And she reminds us that while we don't determine it all, while the world is playful for better and worse, while the world delivers entanglements and indeterminacies that we don't, we don't necessarily expect or control, we have each other. And we will address the Leela, this unforeseen as it comes. And we will do it with a kind of gratitude for the company we keep. And that's such a beautiful lesson of Draupadi, that she knows that even though, even though there are those around her who have, in fact, failed her and, and disappointed her and, and created more of the circumstance, like have added to her stress, they are, in fact, with good hearts and with burning intention, willing to do the tapas, willing to do the work. And that's what that tapas means. Are you willing to do the work that keeps nurturing the relationships of value and understands with gratitude that in this more calming receptivity, we have the ability to offer candor and clarity, and then we'll be able to do this together. And that becomes the heroine's most empowering message. The next character who Yudhishthira engages in this conversation of yoga is Bhima, his brother Bhima. And Bhima is the son of the wind, and he's a giant of a man, and he has fierce appetites. He's called wolf belly for the way in which he lusts and hungers for the world. And 
Uh, this is no retreating to the forest yogi. This is a character who, when he enters the forest, wants, takes up the challenge and means to engage the unknown with all that zeal and ardor, all that tapas. And what Bhima brings to the story is, well, if we are, in fact, subject to these circumstances and captive of these situations, then what we're really going to do is we're going to nurture the fire. And Bhima makes a commitment to the hearth. He makes a commitment to nourishment. And this giant of a man with enormous appetites commits to the family to tend the evening fire, to be vigilant in the darkness, to be joyful in nourishment. And so he becomes a cook and a firekeeper and kind of the, the guy who, who takes up the ordinary tasks that seem so mundane and like, you know, like Beam is doing the laundry and the dishes, you know, he's, but his, his yoga is to bring to it a kind of, a kind of commitment, not of resignation or of complaint, not to be dour, but in a, in a certain way to say as difficult or as stressful as this gets, because, and it becomes stressful by, by its routinization, by its banality, by its everydayness. We can think of stress not simply as urgency or crisis, but as the banality of the stressful life. This is Bhima's great opportunity, because Bhima takes that mundane world and he says, well, you know, I'm going to fold the laundry and everyone's going to be fine. Like he brings a kind of joyfulness to the everyday. He's willing to chop wood and fetch water. He's willing to see in the ordinary an opportunity not to be defeated by routine or by banality, but to take a certain kind of joy in that he's serving and offering, he's engaging with care and commitment. So he's not just making dinner, he's trying to bring some love. And in that case, he makes the difference. And so even in the banality of stress, once again, it is our sankalpa. And this is Bhima's most important idea. It's the word he uses, and it's the word for intentionality. It's the word for gathering together your feelings and thoughts and bringing a certain kind of celebration to your intention. And if you can celebrate your intention, then your actions will reflect those feelings. And so the world that must be engaged with commitments that are you know, perfectly ordinary, someone's got to you know, do the dishes and someone has to fold the laundry, that Bima-like world of the everyday, tending the hearth is how the epic story places it. It is with his intention that he means to make a difference. So sometimes dinner is good, sometimes it's not, sometimes the job gets done, sometimes he even forgets or lapses. But it is an understanding that he brings intention as yoga. And how sweetly our intention shapes our experience of the bearing of the bara and of the burdens that we experience in the everyday. So Bhima's yoga is, a, is one that doesn't 
that, that tries its level best. And I think that's his, that is also his intention. His intention isn't to be perfect. We don't address stress and burnout by pursuing an absolute, by pursuing a perfection that's unachievable or expectations that are unrealizable. But we can take up that world knowing our vulnerabilities, admitting that, that it can be boring or that, it, that the stress happens in the banalities of life as much as it does you know, in the crises or in the circumstances that, that, bring, that bring us to the brink. And yet we can, we can kindle the heart and nourish the fire within and not burn out when we take up our sankalpa, when we gather our intention and we celebrate our intention. And that's what the sum in sankalpa means. Kalpa means to think, to feel, to experience, to conceptualize, to invent, right? So we can, and, and, and in that sense, to imagine and to, and to conceptualize and then to gather that together, sankalpa, and so to create intention and sankalpa, also to celebrate what we gather. And so gather ourselves together, create hope, create a sense of viable intentionality, and to bring to that an empowering, celebratory intention to nourish and create relationship. And Bhima's gift is going to be food and fire, warmth, comfort protection, a sense that just keeping this thing going, this bara, that itself is an, an antidote to burnout. And again, an engagement to kindle the heart's intention is a key to bearing the stress of the ordinary. Now, our third character that Yudhishthira is going to have a conversation with is the restless, inimitable warrior Arjuna. And what Yudhishthira understands about Arjuna is also something I think we've experienced over these past few years. And that is, many of us just didn't like this confinement and, and, don't, and don't relish this sense of, what do you mean we have to put up with this? And there's a certain honest restlessness and and willingness to 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 do something about it and that is very much arjuna's character that arjuna is relentless and restless and so many of you um who are who are deeply engaged in the in in glow's offerings have this commitment and and honest with yourself, you know, it's it's not how do you bring yourself to the mat every day. It's it's uh, it's almost as if you have to sort of well realize that you need to temper those desires, or or not temper them so much as as recognize that our enthusiasm is is coupled with a restlessness, with an ardor that that can burn us out, and we can burn ourselves out. Um, we can take on too much. We can want too deeply to engage. And so our restlessness and our enthusiasm become problematic because we want to make a difference. 
because we won't give up because we're going to come to that seat and we're going to come to it again and again. And so our abhyasa now becomes um, less of an asset and more of a liability. And of course, the teachings of yoga remind us that our assets can become our liabilities and that we can transform our liabilities or our disadvantages into advantages and into assets. And the question is how to do that. And so with this restless Arjuna, who wants so much to commit and make a difference, who needs something to do, Yudhishthira gives him something to do. And he sends Arjuna to meet the persona of his own celestial father. So Arjuna is going to be taught a great meditation. He's going to literally be brought to the seat. And in this meditation, he's going to engage deeply in a, in a contemplation, in a vidya, in a self-verifying reflection in which he's being invited to look deeply into his own heart for that archetype, for that source of restlessness that is both his advantage and his liability. And so his brother Yudhishthira teaches him this empowering meditation. So think of Arjuna. I mean, Arjuna is a charioteer. He's, a, he's a, an archer. He's always on the move. He's a dynamic and restless. Sometimes I think of him as 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 being the kind that 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 kind of kid who has to like has to be outside, who, who like has to be doing something, you know, and his attentions are being are being are being challenged every time um, he's being asked to sit still. But here the genius of Yudhishthira is to teach Arjuna a kind of consideration, a meditation that is an active and dynamic reflection on the question, who do I want to be? And who could I be? And where do I look inside myself to find that empowering presence that is my own heritage, that is my own origin. And this is why the, the story mythically is Yudhishthira's invitation to send Arjuna in search of the god Indra, who is his celestial provenance, his celestial parent, Arjuna. And Indra is that restless, empowering, marshalling, resourced god of who takes up the challenges of leadership and the challenges of a dynamic life and pursues his own passions. Indra, in the ancient stories, um, is, is very much the core of Arjuna's own being. And so, and so Arjuna is sent on the journey to find Indra, which is a meditation upon his own self. Who am I really inside? And Yudhishthira recognizes that Arjuna is this great archetype of the restless yogi, the one in pursuit of deep passions, the one who, who looks for ecstasy in a world that consistently brings the unexpected and crisis. And, and what is he going to do? And so Arjuna sends himself 
on Yudhishthira's instruction into this deep meditation of self-reflection. And strangely, he comes upon this character at the edge of the Himalayas. And it is, and this character appears at, uh, in front of him as a blazing ascetic, yellowish, braided, and wan. And the ascetic, seeing that he had stopped, said to Arjuna, Who are you, son, arriving here in armor with bows and arrows, with sword and wrist guards, who follow, who follow the laws of the warrior? Your weapons are no use here. This is a land of the serene of the ascetical and reflective who control their anger and manage their joy. There is no use for your bows here. Lay them aside. You have reached your journey's end. And Arjuna sees this character but does not recognize him. And then this ascetical Brahmin who appears to Arjuna um, reveals himself because Arjuna has heard this teaching and what is that teaching? That that this that the tools he has brought with him, his usual tools, his bow and his sword, his usual armor and resources, he needs to take a new strategy. And that those won't be useful here and in this circumstance to learn more of who he is and to gather the value of this experience. He's going to have to make some important changes in what is familiar to him, what he already knows how to do. Maybe he's going to need a new practice. Maybe he's going to need a new kind of commitment. And here, the ascetical Brahmin who he meets, who is in fact in disguise, Indra, tells him to put down his bow and arrows and his weapons, the usual tools, his ordinary resources, and to take up another consideration. And what Arjuna recognizes here is that that is in fact the case. Where I am right now, the things I have relied upon, the things that I'm good at, the things that are deeply familiar to me and recognizable, those things, they're going to need, I'm going to need more help. I'm going to need to learn how to take up a different kind of practice. So that like so if I can't go cycling outside, maybe I'm going to need to do a different practice inside. Maybe I'm going to have to get on the cycle machine. Or maybe if I can't go to yoga class with my friends um, locally, maybe I can find that community on in, in a Zoom class or or on Glow, or in a place where I can take my ordinary tools and transform them into something new, something dynamic, even take up a different practice, look across the, the spectrum of what's possible. And that, when Arjuna makes that commitment, the hero of, of boundlessness says, is, is ready and firmly decides, he says, with intentionality to receive what is on offer and the, and the Brahmin began to laugh and said to him, now choose a gift, bless you, for I am Shakra, I am Indra, I am your father. And Arjuna says, with humility, he says, and folding his hands in, in Anjali Mudra, that's the gesture that we all recognize in yoga traditions as the gesture of the heart before the heart, the gesture of respect when we say namaste, namaskar, he says, this is my desire. Grant to me as a gift. I wish to learn from you all the resources I may to become valuable to my family. Now, Indra says to him, I will teach you 
more about the resources you already have. I'm willing to go into that conversation. Indra here is the persona of, of his origin, that is his teacher within, and that ability to reach out and to ask for help and to find teachers who can empower and nourish our yoga. Because otherwise we can burn ourselves out and reach boundaries of, of stress that, are, uh, that, that aren't useful or properly measured because we haven't asked for help and because we haven't asked those teachers of skill who have experience to empower us. Another important feature here, what does Arjuna, the inimitable, self-sufficient, capable yogi do? He asks for help and he goes looking for his own deepest self. And what does he find? He finds that voice inside himself that, that, that recognizes he doesn't know everything, that he has so much more to learn, and that that restlessness can now be directed towards a reinvigoration and a willingness to come to a kind of beginner's mind, to a kind of receptivity and willingness to learn. And he literally asks Indra to help. Now, Indra's response in the story is really rather remarkable. He says, well, before I'm going to give you your resources, and remember, in a certain way, Arjuna is talking to his own self, his deep archetypal persona. Indra is his innermost celestial parentage, um, as the story so vividly puts it. Indra says to him, but first, you must go to the mountain, and you must commit to yourself and you must take up this, this joyful engagement with life, but with rigor and with passion. And there you will encounter what you need to find. And when you do, come back to me. This is Indra's instruction. And so Arjuna leaves, and it says, and he crossed through an impassable jungle at the foot of a great mountain. And there Arjuna dwelt on a peak of the Himalaya, in his splendor, and he saw blossoming trees and the sweet songs of birds and streams full of whirlpools. And it was resonant with the sound of geese and ducks and ringing with the cries of cranes and echoing with the calls of the cuckoo and the loud, the loud voices of curlews and peacocks and the warrior Arjuna saw lovely woods, sacred, cool, and pure water, and he became joyous of spirit. And delighting in that spot, he took his inspiration and gave gratitude for the opportunity. And, and so he made awesome heat devoted to awesome light. Let's pause here. Arjuna goes deeply, deeply inside himself. He goes on the journey to look for more. And what does he find? He finds a celebration of nature. A great way to deal with stress, that restlessness. I know many of us did this, even at the height of the COVID epidemic. You know, you put on the mask and you went for a walk and smell those flowers, listen to the birds, gaze at the sky, let nature be healing, and let the sounds of creatures and the wonders of, of, of life and of the natural world um, surround you. And it says, and so the great Arjuna saw streams of lovely woods filled sacred and cool with pure waters. Yes, yes, delight in a natural life that celebrates life itself. 
and lets the natural world become healing. And then what does he do? He says he takes up a beautiful spot in the woods. And where are those woods? Well, they're in your mind. They're in your heart. They're not only out there in nature, but we are in that forest of feelings, that forest of thought, that forest of the body. And what does he do? He devotes himself with great heat to great light. And so here, rather than retreat from the fire within, he commits to it, not to burn out, but first to be nourished and celebrated by nature, then to take his stand, and then to look for a deeper light. Now, the next thing that happens is, is rather typical, of course, of Indian storytelling, because mm, never is an opportunity for tapas, for the exertions and rigors of yoga to be less, um, how should we say, magnificently celebrated or even extreme. But he says, he was dressed in grass and bark and he carried a stick in deerskin and he passed one month eating fruit every fourth night. And then a second month, he ate every eighth night. And then the third month, he ate only on a fortnight. And then he subsisted on a dead leaf that was on the ground. And then on the fourth month and the full moon came, Arjuna lived on the wind alone with his arms above his head, without support, balancing on the tips of his toes. We have Arjuna in Vrakshasana, in tree pose, living on the air. And because of his ceaseless bathing of braided hair, the hero of boundless might, took on the sheen of lightning and lotus. This is how Mahabharata describes Arjuna's great tapas. He's taken up, he is doing tapasya, he is the tapas vin, he is filled with light and heat. Now, of course, the story is extreme, and it's mythic in its context, of course. He's, he's living on everything but from dead leaves on the ground to merely wind, his arms raised over his head, he's standing on his toes. Mm. I wonder what instruction that is in yoga class. But what he is, is ceaselessly bathing in a boundless inner conviction, in a deep desire to be nourished, to be healed, to, to learn and to grow under arduous circumstances. And isn't that where we have found ourselves, even in this everyday world, in these arduous circumstances? And what can we do? We can bring ourselves to a boundary that doesn't burn us out, but rather, in fact, in fact, invites the glory of nature, our willingness and commitment to kindle the fire within, but to make light and to make a sheen, it says, of lightning and lotus. That lightning is, is, is that when we commit and we have our intentionality and we do the work, we do the work of relationship, of inner conversation, we do the work of yoga, we will have insight. We will gain clarity. We will feel gratitude and grace. Lightning will strike if we commit to ourselves and we commit to those around us, engaging their vulnerabilities, recognizing their fragilities, deepening our intention. And Arjuna here making his own commitment. And when we do, patiently, durably, we can receive that lightning, that illumination. And you'll know what to do. If, you, if we do the work and we make the commitment, the light will come. And we won't be burnt, but we will be warmed. And we will be kindled. 
and will be illuminated. And he says it took on the sheen of lightning and of lotus. The lotus here is such a wonderful image. Because remember, the lotus grows in shallow ponds and it emerges from the mud. And the word that the text here use, uses is very beautiful, very helpful for our consideration of, of stress. The word for lotus here is pankaja, pankaja. And it means mudborn because all of us, you know, are rooted in the mud. We're rooted in the mundane. We're rooted in the physical. We're rooted in the ordinary. We're rooted, but down there in the mud is also where the nourishment and the possibility can serve us. So the mud isn't just mun, isn't just banality or the mundane or the or the yucky stuff. The mud is the place in the everyday and in the ordinary where we can attend and grow our roots and deepen our connections and root down into relationship and into conversation with clarity and insight. And then what happens? The mind, the heart, it's inspired by the light. It rises to the occasion. It, it breaks through the barriers. And there, instead of being consumed by the fire, burnt out, like the lotus, it blossoms above the waterline. And there, instead of being drowned or flooded or burnt out or overtaken, the lotus opens to the light and allows that beauty of creativity, self-creativity, which is in fact its own nature. Why? Because in its mud-born nature, it has reached down and rooted. It has claimed its own nourishment. It has moved, twisted, and found a way through the waters of life, through the circumstance, and it has reached for the light. And how does it appear? Not, not desiccated or destroyed, but with the sheen of wonder and of beauty. And thereupon, the great seers brought to Arjuna the presence of a mountain man. There was one who wielded another bow. Arjuna's on to the next part of his story. And there, Arjuna is once again encountered by a difficulty, an unexpected circumstance. Two things have appeared for Arjuna. There is a wild boar, and that wild boar is a dangerous, unexpected, unwarranted demon. It's, it's a COVID. It's a, it's a stress in the world we didn't expect. And it really smells bad. As the story explains, it's very, very kind of funny. But the demon's name is Mukka. Mukka. And Mukka is like, oh, really want me to tell you? Mukka is, 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 is like, it's like the smell, it's the smell of poo. Like it, it smells like shit. Like that's what the word Mukka really means. Sorry. But that's what it really means. And so something comes along and it's just horrible. Like it's just, ah, right? And Arjuna takes out his bow. And he's going to slay this demon. He's, he's done the yoga. He stood on one foot. He's, he's brought himself new resources. He's tried really hard. And just as he's about to claim the demon, this other mountain man who has appeared there shoots the, shoots the wild boar demon Mukha. And Arjuna is offended. You have done my job. You have stolen from me my glory. You have taken this. And when this was mine to have, 
you have um, you violated the the sort of the law of the hunter. And so they engage in a great conflagration, and Arjuna challenges this mountain man, and each of them slings and arrows in their own kind of anger and and willful intention, trying to conquer the other, until Arjuna realizes that this engagement only leads to kind of his own further burnout. He isn't kindling the fire. He's burning himself out because he's arguing, he's arguing with the mountain man over a fight that's over, over a situation that in fact the mountain man solved for him, right? The mountain man slays the wild boar demon right before his eyes. He's actually done something and created a circumstance that, however, Arjuna took offense, was also a situation where mm, what got done needed to get done. And so Arjuna says, need we fight anymore? At which point the mountain man pulls up his bow and Arjuna realizes that he has learned a great lesson and the mountain man is none other than Mahadeva, the great light. That light is Shiva, the auspicious one. And so Arjuna meets the mountain man who is Shiva. And what does Shiva do? Shiva shows him that auspiciousness, that power of affirmation, that power of rigorous commitment, that power to transform oneself into a great light of, of encouraging power is sometimes challenging, sometimes, in this case, utterly unexpected. And it led Arjuna to a kind of false pride, a sort of unnecessary argument. He starts to burn himself out with worry and challenge and conflict. And instead, what he's realized is that Mahadeva, the great light in the form of the mountain man, has offered him an opportunity of reflection, an opportunity of collaboration, an opportunity for a deeper conversation. And Arjuna asks for that conversation. And Shiva recognizes Arjuna's willingness to transform his anger, his pride, his frustration, his sense of his sense of of privilege and priority into a willingness to engage, to learn, to to grow, and to receive, in this case, a gift he did not he, he didn't even know he was being offered. But auspiciousness is the opportunity to take a difficult situation and to give it affirmation, to translate it into something that empowers and nourishes rather than, rather than depletes and deprives of us of, of, of possibility. And so that story here of Arjuna meeting the mountain man in the form of Shiva, and then Shiva sends him back, sends him back to Indra, and there, Arjuna reengages himself, reinforms himself with his deepest persona, takes up new tasks, learns new resources, gathers, as it were, new, what are called weapons in the story, but really new possibilities, new resources for engaging the problematics of a fiery world, a stressful world, a world that'll burn you out. And the journey of Arjuna is a really great lesson of yoga. He's received help and relationship support from Yudhishthira, his brothers, from Draupadi and Bhima and the rest of, the, of his family. He's gone and made his own journey, 
taken up his own yoga. He's gone looking for himself and found a deeper connection to what's familiar and an openness to the possibility that he's going to have to explore new resources and realize an openness of heart and a willingness of mind to learn new practices. And then what is he going to do? He's going to be sent on, on yet again, another serious journey. He meets that opportunity and Indra, Indra sends him to the mountain. He does his great tapas. How does he do that? He finds gratitude and, and, and celebration in the natural world. He listens and receives. Then he does his own work. And that heat he brings nurtures light. And that light brings him to one to one more grave peril, an unexpected Leela, just what Draupadi suggested to us before. There's going to be some demon, some unwanted intrusion, something that smells really bad, a demon named Muka, right? And, and there he's going to face an opportunity that riles him and challenges him and brings him into conflict. And he's in conflict with a fellow hunter after all, what are, they, what are they hunting? They're hunting the invisible game of their own heart. They're hunting the light and kindling warmth of a nourishing, empowering life of connection. And they're both after the same thing, and they both know that the demons come, that the challenges are real. And what does Arjuna do? Well, he, he challenges those who, that, that, that great light before him, that mountain man, and and realizes that he doesn't have to defeat those who are in pursuit of that same greatness. He doesn't have to be in conflict with those who have their own yearnings and who have their own, their own yoga. And so Arjuna turns this conflict into a collaboration, and he is blessed by the great light. He turns to, to Indra, that is, comes back to his own self, Come back, comes back to the world, takes those stresses, those burdens. He's transformed his instruction into practice. He's faced the unexpected, but he has come back to take up the tasks of life. Arjuna doesn't retreat into a yogic liberation so much as he liberates himself to deal more gracefully, more, more attentively with, with clarity and gratitude for the life he has. What a remarkable and important teaching. Stress. It's just such, a, such an inexorable force in our lives. It's a presence we can't deny. But with the tools of yoga, we can take up practices. We can tell stories that inspire us and, and, and show us that we have different kinds of resources that we're going to find that stress in unwanted circumstances. We're going to find it in the everyday. We're going to have to rise to challenges. But that we need not burn ourselves out, but kindle the fire of intention and of, and of a warmth to relationship to transform conflict and challenge and to receive 
opportunity by the ways in which we practice and hold forth our desires as opportunities to share with one another the greatness of yoga. Commit to the work. Yes, that sounds stressful, but like a thorn removing a thorn, yoga is a gift of engagement. We can't bypass, we can't deny without the consequences. But what we can do is stay connected, enter relationship, learn, nurture, reflect, offer our experience with honesty and candor, receive what we can in help, in resource, in instruction. And little by little, again and again, we'll find those resources in our hearts. We'll acknowledge the celebration of a human life in a body that is ours, ours to make of with what we have and how deeply we engage. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for this uh, great opportunity to talk to the community. Um, I wish you uh, the warmth and splendor, uh, the sheen of lightning and lotus. Take care, everyone. Make the most of this wonderful life of yoga. I'll see you at the next practice. Thanks for listening to this talk by Professor Douglas Brooks, which he recorded especially for the Globe podcast. Douglas will record more episodes like this, so watch for them in your feed. I'm Derek Mills.